Good morning, church. Welcome to those online. Hello to you as well. And uh, as I told the church earlier, but in case you're watching this a little bit later on online, uh, I have a little bit of a cold today. So uh, hopefully we'll get through this, uh, let me know, with the Lord's help. Do you want to say that we're starting a new sermon series? Woohoo! And uh, we'll be titling this sermon series that is Fellowship, right? It's not fellowship, but fellowship, right? And we'll get to that a little bit later as we go through this. But first, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. The Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this uh, sermon series is called Fellowship, which, of course, if you just short it, it's fellowship, right, all together. And this is something that we hear in the church quite often, especially in Scripture when you're reading through. If you ever read in the English, there's a word about fellowship, a word about fellowship, a word about fellowship, quite often throughout Scripture as we read through it. Well, that word fellowship is going to be an important one, I think, for our church, and you'll see why today. But as we mentioned in our last sermon series, that where do we go from here and what is really the next step? Well, your pastor's answer to that is this word, fellowship. (laughs) And what I mean by that is before a church can be truly outwardly focused and truly doing the outreach that it needs to do, one of the things it needs to do is have this core spot with each other, this core being with each other, this core part of Scripture that we see over and over again. And so one of the things that's time to focus on is to really focus on this idea. The Greek word is called koinonia. So say koinonia. You guys aren't in this. Come on, if you will. Koinonia. Let's hear it. There we go. Yeah. Koinonia. Now, of course, what this word meant uh, is, is something interesting. It basically means literally this. It literally means participation. And so the Greek authors took this word, and a lot of times it kind of, with that word, literally what it meant, it also kind of means and comes to understand this idea is what is shared in common. And so participation is a word that we'd maybe translate it as, or maybe contact, fellowship, intimacy, contribution, or even collection. All kind of ideas of what koinonia was about. Of course, as you read through Scripture, you read about the early church and the things that were happening with it. It talks about fellowship over and over And you see those different things. You see people participating. You see people intimate and giving up the worldly things and living living in a fellowship with each other. You see the contributions and collections for those that are in need. You see all sorts of different things in this idea of fellowship. But of course, the original Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, as we just mentioned. It was eventually, of course, translated in Latin. Eventually, that was translated into English. And so it's interesting to think about just for a minute why they chose the word fellowship in the English language for the word koinonia. And it's interesting, the English word fellowship really meant this. It was a, literally meant back in the day, a partner in a venture, right? So if you were starting something, it was the partnership, the buy-in to be part of something that would hopefully grow as in a business, right? And so they said, okay, what is the right word for this word koinonia to put into English? And they said, we got the word fellowship, which you and I know today stem from that idea, to be holy into God's people, and to once again be participating in all that God has for us together. Now, when I think of this image of this word fellowship, what comes to my mind is literally some of the words that are in it. And what I mean by that is you remember the days of sailing across the oceans, right? And almost always did a ship go by itself? No. It always had a what? Another ship right? And if you think about that image of almost two or more ships like crossing through the ocean and going through all the dangers of itself, there were a couple things they had in common. One, 
was, of course, they had a common goal. They were trying to get somewhere. You didn't just float around on the ocean just to float around on the ocean, right? There was something you were trying to do and to get across and do and a goal to go towards. They also relied on each other. And so when they both were caught, if their ship was caught up and one's sail was torn, they would share resources back and forth, of course, to go across. They would share common command. They would share common all sorts of resources with each other and to be in this together, to uplift each other. And one had misfortune. The other one shared in those misfortunes to lift up and encourage and to bring that ship along. Otherwise, that ship might sink. And then if they were in trouble, what happened? There was no other ship to help them. So there was a common cause here, right, of fellowshipping, taking care of one another, going across. And of course, whatever fortunes were shared, were shared with each other. And so if a great gale came, both ships would go through it together and on the other side would help rebuild. Or if both came and had strong headwinds, they'd both reap the rewards of getting to an early port earlier than they expected. Well, in these coming weeks, I wanted to take some time to look at this idea of what does true fellowship look like in Scripture? And of course, to start, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. And I don't know if you ever sit and think about these days of God's creation that's told in Genesis chapter 1, but I always love to stop and think about it, especially in today's world, because if you're like me, everything in the world just keeps going, keeps reaching out to you, right? Your phone keeps dinging, right? The, the, you know, now we set our alarm in our fridges, and, you know, there's like smart fridges that tell you when you're out of food, right? And order it for you, and then they ding your phone saying, hey, I ordered food for you, right? It gets delivered. There's all sorts of craziness in our world which is constantly berating us, constantly coming, constantly coming. And yet, at the very creation of the world, there's this story of what God did on the seventh day. You remember, of course, we just read it, and what do you do on the seventh day, people? You rested. God rested, and he says in Scripture that not only did he rest, in resting, he made it what? What's the word that's used? Holy. And then if you look at the people of God, you know, as you research the Israelites and you read through Scripture, there's a command that's told to them over and over and over. And one of the ways that they're going to be known as the people of God is they're going to do what on the Sabbath? They're going to keep it holy. And it wasn't an option. It was God told them, you're going to keep this holy. You are my people. Keep it holy. And so they were supposed to rest on that day. Now, if you ever look at what the Israelites, what they did on the rest, so what do you do if you rest on a day? What does that practically look like. Here's what it looked like. You gathered with family and friends. And you'd done most of the preparation for all your meals the day before, so you just sat and ate. You were on a cruise ship, people. That's what the day of holiness was, right? You were sitting around, hanging out with nothing to do, eating with your friends and your family. And really, for lack of any other better words, you were just sat and enjoyed together. Because on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to just be alone and do no work. The whole idea of the Sabbath was you were with the people together. You know, God, really, it's interesting looking at the, the Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. He, it's very clear in Scripture that he had that rhythm of the Sabbath and keeping it. We know in Scripture that sometimes people got mad at him for not keeping the Sabbath in their own eyes. They got mad at him for healing. They got mad at him when his disciples picked some, like when they were hungry, and they picked some kernels of wheat, you know, to, to kind of bring in the field. But it doesn't talk about anything else that Jesus did on the Sabbath as far as things that people got mad at. He for sure kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest. It was something that he did. Otherwise, we'd hear about it in Scripture. 
And that rhythm still stands for us today to do, to take hold of, and to live out in our own lives. If you really stop and think about it, do you take time to make a holy day of rest? In our culture, guess what? If you're like me, it doesn't want you to. They want you to be so busy, you can't keep track of anything. That you buy whatever it tells you, right? You go and spend money on whatever it tells you. You need this new thing, this new thing, this thing. You have to go to this new you know, pumpkin patch because you see it on Facebook and all your other friends are having this great family picture moment on Facebook. And so you got to take your family to the new pumpkin patch because no other pumpkin patch will do on your day off, right? But yet, God says that he rested on the seventh day. He called it holy in so doing. He commanded his people to keep it holy. And the way they did that was being together. You might use the term fellowship on that day. And almost the heart of fellowship started in this idea of rest. Now, I went and I saw a movie last night with the kids. You guys uh, probably like going to the movies. I like going to the movies a lot. I really enjoy it. The kids and I love it. And, and, you know, the kids, well, okay, it's me. I really like the popcorn, maybe even better than the movie. But the kids like it too, right? And so, you know, we do the whole popcorn thing and then, I always like, we always are running late, so we always like don't eat dinner ahead of time, and then you eat like a whole bucket of popcorn, and you just, yeah, anyways, and, and if you're like me, you just salt it and butter it like crazy, so, you know, you just feel, maybe I'm sick because of the buttered popcorn last night, I don't know, but uh, I went and got, saw the movie Puss in Boots last night, now, oh, you saw, did you see it? It was, Terry is absolutely right, it was being my, my critical assessment of this movie, it was great, and totally worth going and seeing in the movie theaters, like, it was just fun. It was fun the whole way through. Had great messages in it and all that. But one of the characters, they set up kind of some foils. And, of course, our main characters have some flaws. And there's some side characters that come along that are the opposite of those flaws. You know, they're kind of like the foil. You know, this kind of goes in storytelling, right? How they're the opposites and stuff. And the, the characters grow because of being interacting with this, with this person. And so in this one, uh, this one character is called Parito throughout the dog. It just means literally little dog in Spanish, right? And so he goes by Perito at this point and goes throughout the whole movie being called this. And um, there's this point in the movie where the Perito dog is basically, what I love so much about this movie too is this character is one of the first characters I've seen in a long time that like just nails the fruit of the spirit. Like so many times when we tell stories nowadays, like everybody's evil, you know, like there's, everybody's got these flaws and you got everybody's got to like all these weird things got to happen. This is a movie where finally there's a character who literally like lives and embodies all the different fruit of the spirit we see in scripture. And uh, this dog, you know, is just so kind and loving and forgiving and, and all the loyal things, all the things you just, when you sit and you say, this is something good. And you encounter this character you, throughout the movie, you're just cheering for this character because the character is so good. But what's so interesting about it is one of the good character traits, right? And, and Terry can attest to this that saw the movie they go through this whole journey, but there's this one part where they're going through and trying to find this treasure, if you will, and they got to stop and smell the roses, right? Otherwise, the roses eat you, is what happens. But you got to stop and, and smell the roses, right? Because the roses won't let you through otherwise, and they're being chased, and they're all, you know, there's this whole great story of all these characters that are all trying to get to the end, and they're all racing each other and doing these things. But the story stop and smell the roses. And what the characters kind of learn by the end, I'm not going to ruin the whole thing for you, but they learn from Little Perito <laughs> what true life looks like. And at the end, the treasure 
was there with them the whole time. Well, church, I would pose to you that God has the treasure for us this whole time. And I love looking at this idea of God resting, because of course, was God tired? It doesn't seem so. I think God could have gone 150 million days of creating if he wanted to. But he went six. Now, why did he rest? Was it just to be an example for his people? Well, surely that is true, but was that the only reason? I think the answer is no. The only reason I can really kind of come up with and that I see in Scripture is that God rested because he wanted to stop and enjoy the creation. What does it say? Remember when, when the fall happens and they eat from the, Adam and Eve eat from the tree? It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 8, about God would take walks in the garden. Just think about that. God, creator of the universe, stopped and walked in the garden he created. He called out to the people he created. Be with them. Fellowship was there at the beginning. It was God created, and it was the foundation almost for everything else that comes from God's commands of what to do and who to be and how to work into this world that oftentimes goes tipsy-turvy and sideways and all the different gray areas of going through things. But one of the keys is, is it starts with this idea of holy rest and this idea of fellowship. You see it even in the scriptures of Jesus. When you, Jesus calls his disciples in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, the very first thing it says about them, it says he then called a group of people up to, to come, and it says he called them to what? First thing it says is to be with him. And then to go send them and do all sorts of things, it says after that. But the very first thing it says is literally just to be with him. It's been often said in church leadership and church people and different things that there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. Now, if you get sent to an island or something, right, you get shipwrecked or something, God's still with you, he doesn't abandon you, that's not what they mean, but they mean... The Christian life, properly lived out, cannot be one in a silo. It's not one that's lived by oneself. It's lived only in a community. In fact, John Wesley, who, of course, we admire in many different ways, but one of the things he was really big on was, there is no such thing as a sole Christian. And in fact, his whole entire, why we remember him, is he was a genius at organizing people and actually getting them into people groups of not only fellowshipping with each other, but truly living together Onto that goal of becoming more Christ-like. That togetherness, that fellowship, that being together was the very first thing not only at creation, was the very first thing not only for Jesus calling his disciples, was the very first thing that John Wesley mirrored in the holy Christian life of making sure you were with other people, making sure that you didn't just come on a Sunday morning, but you actually spent time with other Christians and that fellowship and uplifting each other. Well, church, you probably get the message here today. But the very first thing, now that we kind of got the wall set up, before some of the houses are even built, remember what they did in the sermon we had preached just a few weeks ago? They celebrated the Passover, right? And then they celebrated the Festival of Booths. If you're someone who maybe has a hard time with, uh, you know, the idea of a whole, taking a whole day of rest, a couple of things I've found very helpful to do that. First of all, it's interesting how Scripture tells time, right? Because we tell time totally differently. Modern times, of course, we have midnight, right? 
next day, 1201 is the next day, or even 12 is the next day. You know, I always forget, you know, the argument of is it exactly midnight or is it 1201? But anyways, we tell time by a clock. Well, you know, even before that, when you didn't really have the clocks as much, people told time by the idea of the morning sun rose up. And until the morning sun rose up the next day, it was that day. However, that's not even how Scripture tells time. It's actually the opposite. You see, the day started with sundown. If you read in Scripture, it says those words, right? For instance, in the day six, it says this, and God saw that all he had made, it was very good, and there was, what, evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. So maybe try changing up the way you think about the day, if you have some trouble with this, because the day doesn't start at sunrise in the scriptural kind of testimony. The day starts at sunset. And believe it or not, your day actually starts with the restful part of your day, if you think about it. The day where you're winding down and getting ready for bed and, and you know, being that time with your family as you sit around a table, hopefully, or fellowshipping with other believers and doing those things, that's how the day starts. And then, of course, the Sabbath was on the seventh day. Christians, we changed it to the first day of the week on Sunday, but it actually was Saturday. And so if you think about how this logically works, it actually was Friday, what we would call Friday night at sundown, until Saturday night at sundown is technically the actual Sabbath day that originally was instituted. And so not that it really kind of matters too much in the sense of which day you choose, but the simple idea is this, is that there is a day of rest that's been ordained by God to be holy. And if you do it right, you have to fellowship. There's no way around it. It's part of the gig, and it's part of the rest. And it was instituted by God. And it seems like in Scripture, as we read in the creation account, God took great joy in it to walk in the garden, to be with God, his people of his creation. And Jesus himself not only adhered to the Sabbath in many different ways and enjoyed, as we see kind of throughout Scripture, but his very first task for his disciples, just to be with him. Church, as we move forward in these days, we're going to be looking at all sorts of different ways of fellowship and how to do it and what Scripture testifies to it. As I said, we've got some potlucks coming up. We're going to do some fellowshipping. Get your, get your kitchen stoves ready and your crockpots getting going and dust them off because we're going to be having some fun. We'll talk more about that later. But church, the big message once again. First things first. It's time to fellowship. Make sure you make room in your heart, your mind, and your schedule, in your calendar to put fellowship first. Let us pray. God, as we're here today, once again, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your purpose in our life. That your word, Lord, always goes out and it never, ever comes back empty. It always bears fruit. And God, it's amazing to think that you, the creator of the universe, not only created things, but you created us. That you loved us so much that this whole gospel story plays out and that we, your people, are here today to once again hear these words. Lord, in our own culture, in our own times, it's so easy, Lord, to forget about this idea of rest and this idea of fellowship. God, it's the very core and the very center of who we're called to be. And so as we're here today, Lord, help us to once again make this a priority and to make this the life-giving part of where we reach out and do all the mission work and all the things you've called us to do. Let it come from this cup that overflows. Because, Lord, not only do we love each other, but like two ships on a great journey, 
We're there for each other. We're cheering each other on. We're uplifting each other, and we truly are partners in this, this great endeavor of your great mercy and your great love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.